Welcome to the Pencil to Pencil Podcast. In this episode of Pencil to Pencil, we talk with artist and writer Howard Chaikin. In his close to 50-year career, starting as an assistant to Gil Kane, to his early work at DC, the first comic adaption of Star Wars, to his turn as a paperback artist and illustrator, capping the 80s with his influential books American Flag and Black Kiss. Shaken has had a rich and varied career, even writing episodes of The Flash TV show. Shaken's latest work, Hey Kids Comics, is a fictionalized history of the comic book business featuring characters closely resembling Golden Age and Silver Age artists and writers. We interview Chaikin from his studio in Ventura, California. Who would have guessed? Freelancers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're How are you guys? Good, good. How are you? I'm uh, vertical. You know, there are days, right? You know, <laughs> Sometimes it's the best you can do. Are you, uh, are you on deadline today or not on deadline today? Actually, me, I just... Um, to do a little bit of reconstruction and deconstruction and construction on the last of the third chunk of four of Times Squared Volume 3. And uh, what we're doing is we're we're playing with a stage set and building characters. We're trying to figure out which ones that we've done done in preparation for are going to be used, what gags we're going to play here, that sort of thing. So um, he's fucking around, so I'm yours for the time being. So no, so so what are you doing? You're, you're repurposing the art, or well, you know, I I stopped doing I stopped doing full page. Here, here we are, right into the conversation. I stopped doing pages about 15 years ago. I now do fully evolved layout. Um, but the on-page artwork, generally speaking, is mostly large shapes, heads, and stuff like that. I do my figures and backgrounds on separate sheets and combine them in Photoshop. And um, and I my my IT guy does, does the actual digital work, and I'm over yelling and screaming. So, so Laura, you know. so you you provide the. Are you actually inking your drawings? Or yes, 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 yes. I mean, I've still got a blackened callus on my my left middle finger. And we'll die with it. As you, you should. Know. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. But hopefully not soon. Don't, pu- don't push my luck or yours. You know? uh, so, so tell us what you're working on today again. What you were, what All right. Well, right now we're in the process of putting away the, the final pieces of part three of four of, of, the, of the third volume of Times Squared, returning to material that I did in the late 80s which met with, with universal indifference at the time, but it's become sort of one of those acknowledgments of the fact that I spent my entire career overestimating my audience. <laughs> and um, it's, we're, we're, we're sort of putting it together right now. And what got all this started was a discussion of the, of the current technology we use, which is to say I now do my figures and backgrounds on separate sheets and combine them in Photoshop. So that's what we're doing right now. And um, I was explaining how this process started. I stopped doing pages about 15 years ago. If that's what you want to hear about, I'll be going to, right, into detail right, on that. Right, yeah, no. um, when, I, when, I, when, I was, when I did Mighty Love, which is the first book I did after I got back into comics, uh, I hired as an assistant a guy who was newly evangelical about digital comics and digital technology. And the, the work was literally a, an argument that went on for days over how much or how little to use. And I won because I was in charge. About two years later, we were working on, a, on, a comic, on the Blade comic book, issue four, which took place in 18 pages of the 22, took place in a department store at Christmas time, which is a flaming bitch to draw. 
And simply for the sake, for the sake of expediency, I found three good photographs of the Macy's shopping floor, traced them, and added patterns to the floor and decorations to make it read as three different views of the same floor. And should be confirmed, this is simply for expedience sake and time, but we discovered an unexpected, unanticipated benefit, which is that by repetition and by clever use of these shots, we enhance the verisimilitude of the material profoundly. Uh, the consistency of it really sell, sold the idea. So I called Don, who was the Don Cameron, who's the guy who was, was my assistant on that Mon Mighty Love, and said, you were right, I was wrong. And we've gone in that direction ever since. So now I do full layout, but the on-page work is generally speaking headshots. All the figures and backgrounds are separately and then photoshopically enhanced. So you don't miss yeah. having pages? No. I mean, I, I sacrifice it. I mean, look, I've always worked for reproduction anyway. Um, I just, I'm, I'm not a... I'm not a guy that the audience cares about in that regard. I mean, I'm not someone who, I mean, I'm not a, I'm, I'm the Van, I used to say the Van Morrison of comics. I'm the Randy Newman of comics, you know, and um, the audience, the, if the audience knows I exist at all, for work I did 45 years ago, that was shit. And um, for the most part, my audience is tiny, generally loyal, but easily confused. So do you, um, you have two, two different, different audiences? Do you have... An audience is a writer. An audience is a writer artist. No, I think I have an audience that read my Star Wars comic books in the nineteen seventies, and then eleven other guys. Well, that um, was me. I was one of the eleven. Well, that may be so, but you have to understand that I've I've, I've published a manifesto recently telling people that if they're going to invite me to a convention. I will not be promoted as the guy who drew Star Wars in 1977. That is not my, well, I refuse to do this. Uh, it's also one of the reasons why I, I declined an invitation to come to the San Diego convention this year. Because the convention treats me as a nostalgia object. I'm not a has-been. I'm a working professional who's still doing work that's, uh, that, that informs the material. And um, I will not be regarded as, a, as a nostalgia item to be trucked out and, and, and compared to George Lucas or that work. I don't care about that work. It doesn't interest me in the least. It was work I did because it was a job that was offered to me when I was 25 years old and I did the work. I've said more than once publicly that I'd like to think I would have done a better job had I known it was going to be as big a deal. But I'm not even sure I had the skill set to do that. So you know, when, I you, when you, I, I remember talking to Bill Ray about it once because I think he worked on it a little bit and it was yeah. sort of like a, a crazy rush job, right? Right. But, but, but that's no excuse. I mean, rush jobs are still jobs. I mean, and no, no one ever withdraws forgiveness quicker than a client who's, who's asked you to do a rush job that doesn't come in as, as beautiful as they've envisioned it, as you well know. Yeah. No good deed goes unpunished. Uh, well, someone actually at the convention, I, I, was, I was pissing and moaning about this a couple of years back, and someone said that, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, hey, we're all buddies and well met, fuck you guys. Um, that, you know, you just sound like Harrison Ford pissing and moaning. Well, you see, the difference is <laughs> Harrison Ford made millions, and I made 15 bucks a page on top of my original rate. So please. Spare me your 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 relative is nonsense. So so you didn't um, you, you can't buy old uh, World War II aircraft is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never even got up to go in Herb Chimpy's plane, so don't don't judge yeah. me here. <laughs> but then again, I wouldn't have because I'm too much of a coward, you know. That's well, it. it's also hard for fans to understand that when you were actually drawing that, no one had the remotest idea of what was going to happen to that pro property. So yeah. 
I mean, I'm sitting at the, at the Low East State or the Low East Capital, I forget which, on Wednesday before the movie opens. And there may be six other people in the theater, and I'm sitting there, and this thing starts, and it's like, I felt like Ricky Ricardo with uh, being being hit hard by Lucy. You know, you got some explaining to do here. Uh, I, that was when I realized this was going to be a big deal. You know, but um, but let's face it. I mean, it, I don't I don't really care about Elvis Presley either, but he's still a big, big deal too. You know. Um, culturally so was, speaking, I'm not I'm not interested in this work. You know? So what was a big deal to you at that time? Well, at, at that point, I was I, I had no skill set whatsoever, and I was learning my craft. I mean, I was I, mean, I was getting work under false pretenses because I had a you know I had the Willie Loman thing. I had a smile and a shoe shine. Um, I don't feel I, I deserved the work I got until I literally left comics for a couple of years to become a paperback man and learned a special technique. I, I was never going to be a really good illustrator because I just don't have that. I don't have the patience. I was born for comic books because comic books are a shorthand form, both textually and visually. Um, I was never going to be able to compete with uh, with Harold Foster, but I could certainly compete with with, with Milton Kniff because I had I had a strong sense of graphics, which ultimately evolved into technique. But it wasn't until I did Flag that I had. I mean, I have no idea why I first thought that had the confidence in me to do to let to, to pay me to do Flag. I have no clue. I I, I credit Mike Gold with a, with a kind of prescience, which I can't imagine where it came from. Um, but Flag was one that taught me that if I worked really hard and did good work in the service of material that was worthy, I may be able to produce work that didn't shame me in the morning. But bear in mind, Flag was also done for a tiny company, which nobody saw except for the next generation of comic book talent. I'm interested in this idea of impatience. Do you think that that's also the reason why you prefer to work in comics rather than go directly to prose? Absolutely. Okay. Unequivocally, yes. Yes. I mean, I write reasonably well. I mean, I became a writer in comics simply out of self-defense because I feel that most of the examples of the people who were writing comics when I first came into the business they were failed as comic book artists with a couple of specific exceptions. And but but the truth is that I'm I'm I, I'm a good strong visual narrative guy, and I like the idea of telling a story that that is both visual and textual. Um, I'm constantly reminded by the fact that the that the comic book business has been taken over by an alpha writer business, which is completely absurd. But it also points at you know the the diminished capacity for comprehension of the audience, with all due respect. And, um, what, and an what, that, what what due respect is that? I want to have that defined. <laughs> Well, I, I I feel that you know anytime you have an audience of, that, of adult men and women who are reading children's books, which is to say, with Harry Potter and Mockingjay, um, you are you are asking an, an audience for that, that's fairly credulous and fatuous, and is easily manipulated by people who are selling a brand as opposed to a talent. Um, I think that, that that's that's the business and that's the marketplace in which we work today. I believe. And that, that, I guess, also relates to uh, what you were talking about, nostalgia, because, I mean, nostalgia is a big driving factor in, in pretty much most entertainment. But, but, it's a, but it's not a real nostalgia. It's a, it's a skewed, screened nostalgia. It's more based on screened memory than actual nostalgia and, 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 and actual experiential nostalgia. Um, it's it's ba- it's a an idea for you know it's this whole contemporaneous chauvinism thing with this an entire generation of people who feel that they can rewrite history by pointing out its flaws and you know I mean come on it's the, the, we we we've, I mean I'm old I mean I'm older than both of the view I believe and you know the truth is I've lived through situations which are appalling and offensive 
And I know full well that um, the people who are living, who are going to be poor today, or making these denunciatory screeds, are going to find themselves being regarded as scum in 25, 30 years by a next generation. So, uh, batten down your hatches, bud. You know. So, when you were, uh, I'm interested in your in your uh, your your journey um, from being. Uh, I guess now, were you working with Gil Kane as an assistant before you started the Star Wars stuff? Or like when you were doing? Oh, absolutely! I, I I worked for Gil when I was eighteen and nineteen. I was a kid. I did the Star Wars stuff when I was twenty-five. I actually did no hands-on work with Gil. I was I was Gil's gopher. The only hands-on work I did between now then in that in that era, I, I ghosted his stuff, but and I only discuss people ghost work I've done for those who were dead. I ghosted for for Gray Morrow. I'm serious. All these motherfuckers coming out and talking about work they're doing for people. You, you never only talk about the dead. Um, and I ghosted for Woody, and um, and I ghosted a bunch of stuff for Gil, for Gray Morrow. I, some his, his lampoon stuff, some newspaper strip stuff. Um, the only hands-on work I ever did with Gil was taking over the Sawhawk strip while he was sick. So now ghosting. Yeah. What would that? What would that involve? What, what what was what was your? Because one of the things I I think that the current generation of artists miss is what you experienced and I experienced a little bit which is that it was a, 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 a profession that was handed down by you or me or somebody you know working with an assistant with a more experienced artist and then you sort of you know you you built your your uh, your skill set by starting with like real basic things so Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I penciled for Gray, and I was terrible. I mean, I was awful. But I learned how to, how, how to draw for someone else, you know, and you, just, you work on it, you know. Um, and and I, 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 owe my, I owe my entire career to Gil Kane, Gray Morrow, Wallace Wood, Neil Adams, and Joe Orlando. Um, those five guys, I stand on those shoulders. The first four taught me how to do what I do. And Orlando taught me how not to get 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 nailed by by Carmine Fantino in the in the hallways of DC Comics, <laughs> because Carmine hated Gil so much, and I was associated with Gil so profoundly that I was in his gun sights from word one. So they so they had like a long standing feud. I think. Oh, oh fuck yeah! They hated from the moment they met at fourteen. Remember these guys knew them. They knew each other since they were children. So he knew Gil you know? when he was still Eli Katz. Oh God, yes. And Al Stack. I mean, all those other pseudonyms, you know. Um, you know, I mean, they they knew each other from from. I mean, they I think they met either at Jack's at Jack's studio. Um, I, don't, I guess that way. I mean, because Gil always talked about George Tuska saving his ass, and that Tuska was his role model for 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 style and sport. Um, but yeah, they hated each other from word one, and I was like I said so deeply associated with Gil as to be, you know, a villain in, 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 um, in Carmine's eyes. Yet he, you know, he, I mean, com- I mean, comics are, have always been personal vendetta. You know, it's, it's everybody <laughs> hates everybody, you know, come on. It's a small trop and a lot of pigs. Well, know? that's just art in general. I mean, it's the same way with pigs. Right, exactly. You know, it's, it, every ism is broken up by the people that are in that current ism who start to hate each other. Exactly. You know. You know. I mean. I mean. We all made a pleasure. We would never turn into our parents' generation. And within five years, we were all hating each other's guts again. You know, it was great. <laughs> you know, and of course, now that we're old, we've all forgiven each other. You know, that that's the deal. Now it's like you know, 
I mean, a couple of years back, I found myself at a table with, uh, with two guys of my generation and a young guy. And the young guy is the guy who set up the meal. And the young guy ended up getting cut out completely of the conversation because the three of us each found out we all had anecdotes about, an, about a, a third party of our generation we all loathed that the other two hadn't heard. So it was just like shit talk about an absent colleague. It was the best. Uh, so it was like your Dan Flagg story? Uh, yeah, for, well, not quite. I wouldn't go quite that far. But um, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm. I, I know a lot of guys in the business. I know, I know, I'm, and there are people who hate me, and many of them have every good reason to, because it's my fault. You know, I'm willing to eat that. You know, um, so I'm good. So, so when you were working, I'm, I'm also interested in like when you're working for like, say, somebody like Gil, who definitely had mm-hmm. Kane had definitely had like a system. And then you mm-hmm. work with somebody like Gray Morrow, who has a very different system. Did that? Do you do you take pieces from that with you to help? Like, sort of. At what point were you becoming conscious of? Because uh, I remember reading your work. You know, like I said, when I was when I was younger, the Monarch, the Star Stalker, and the stuff you were doing as you were going on, and I was aware of the fact that it seemed like your your work was changing a little bit with each new thing that you were doing. Well, I had no idea what I was doing. I really didn't. I mean, it's one of the ways that my career echoes Gill's in that, you know, you look at Gill's work from from the early from the mid forties till he comes back from the service and you know, and then you get to the early fifties, you begin to see you know, he starts his career imitating Jack and then he goes on, he starts imitating Toth and, and, and Dan Barry. Um, and it isn't until until he comes under under Julie Schwartz's wing in the mid fifties that he begins to develop a, pers- a personality. He's still using elements of, of, of Alex and Dan. The Kirby stuff has vanished. But, and then he, then, then he comes under the, uh, under the sway of, of that, that douchebag, Bern Hogarth, uh, who intimidates him, but at least inculcates him in, a, in, a, in an understanding of the body and, and develops the flayed figure that was the defining element of the superhero stuff. Right. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm of the belief that, you know, Gil was the most successful interpreter of the Kirby ethos post-Kirby at Marvel. Uh, he really did catch that tone. Do you think more um, than Basema? Yes, I do. I do. I think Basema is a guy... I mean, I'm, I know I'm in a major- minority here. I'm sorry. Please stop no, no pillorying. I think Basema <laughs> is grossly overrated. I truly do. He's a phenomenal draftsman, but for me, not an interesting comic book artist. No, because you think that he was not intellectual enough about his approach. No, I just I I, I like the work. I didn't love the work. Okay, um, and I think his 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 resentment of having to do the work came through in a lot of places for me. Well, I think um, I'm also. Not, I mean, I also I also I know, and, and I know this is also you know you know heretical. I'm also not a fan of Gene Colan's work. Okay. Um, as a kid, I hated Sikowski. I love Sikowski. As a kid, I hated Heck. I love Heck. Okay. Um, I what is it about? Don't... What is it about? I'm, in fact, I was going to say I'm actually with you on December, so we're in a very small minority there. But mm-hmm. what is it about Colin that uh, you like the least? To There's no sense of horizon balance. It, no, nobody in any of his images seemed to be standing on a on the same ground plane. Um, everything seemed to be floating. There seemed to be no real weight to the characters. The characters lacked. I, 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 what I respond to in Gil stuff is the balletic nature of the action. Okay, I mean, years ago, I was sitting with my my then wife um, in in the front row, as we always do with theater, 
watching Bob Fosse's attempt to, to, to slap Michael Bennett across the face uh, with a show called Dancing, which was his reinvention of other people's choreography. And they did it. They did uh, Aaron Copeland's Rodeo um, and do, reinventing um, uh, what's her name, uh, Agnes Mills choreography. And I turned to turned to my wife and I said, "Holy fuck, that's Gil Kane's action figures." And he, she went. Then she said, "No shit, that's exactly right." Um, I mean, you look at Mich- you know, Mikhail Baryshnikov moves like Gil Kane's figures move. Okay, um, the great flaw of Gil's work is the inability to slow down enough to move beyond the generic. Generic guns, generic suits, generic shoes, cars, houses, hats, everything. There was never any any capacity to to to, to be the, to, and, and to introduce the specific into the world. I think there are a lot of guys from that generation actually suffered from that. Well, I remember trying to teach him, and it was just—I mean, Don, Don Cameron signed on to teach Gil how to use photographs, and it was a—it was a comedy of errors. Um, it was very sad for both of them, I think. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, th- I think. I mean, part of that, uh, I think, Basema suffered from too, because you get used to being able to produce that amount of work. Then you need to produce right. that amount of work because your lifestyle says I need to produce this amount of work. And then when you, but say, it's also it, it also even goes beyond lifestyle because when, when the money increases, they're still incapable of getting getting past the the six page a day thing. You know, I mean, I think to to a certain extent. I think Gill was much more what what um, Eisner once dismissed Kirby as a six page a day hack, and I think that to a greater extent, a lot of the guys who came along afterward were that were that guy. Okay, um, and I, I think you know we, we, you know hack is such a an easy an easy pejorative to throw around, particularly from an audience that doesn't accept the fact that the work is also a job. Right. Um, you know, um, I I have a. I have a fairly neutral reaction to to praise and blame from the comic book enthusiast crowd, simply by the end of the fact that most of them don't acknowledge that you know you got to eat. Right. <laughs> this is your well, job. You, you got a family. You got to put your kids through college. Uh, you right. Know, whatever. Right. Yeah. And if you, you know, as I, I just published a long piece on Medium, and I talked about the fact that you know um, I'm not interested in superhero comic books, and have lost my interest in them. And I, and I, but I will occasionally do them because, frankly. Not every job is going to change the world, and sometimes you've got to, you've got to pay the mortgage and, and and keep the lights on. You know. Were you never interested Everything is, in superheroes? It, say again. Were you never interested in superheroes? Oh, I loved them. Are you kidding? I mean, oh, please. I was I was such a I was such a Marvel fanatic. I discovered the Marvel stuff when I came back from summer camp in September of '63, and it was like, oh my god, this is the best. I mean, I, it was like. Fuck Saul on the road to Damascus. This was a transformative moment, for Christ's sake. And I loved it. I just adored it. But my skill set wasn't up to it. And by the time it did catch up, I wasn't interested in it anymore. A lot of it is that, you know, I, I fell under the sway of people who were both doing it professionally but dismissing it privately. And ultimately, it, it got in the way of my, of my ability to do it. I also find the ethos of the material really off-putting. Um, I, I have a... I just and an innate aversion. I mean, and again, it, it was a, it was a, a it was a, a paradigm shift that took place in my mid twenties, um, and I kept looking for something else to do. Um, I mean, they just announced today this, the Superman Year One book from with Frank by Frank and John, and, and wow, what a surprise that is! Who would have guessed? Who would have thought that come along? Um, you know, and and I, you know, I, eh, I'd, I'd rather read Tom DeHaven's book. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know. And I love Tom DeHaven's book. It made me cry. Yeah. Well, I mean, I th- I think in in the case of uh, you know the corporate 
comics, they're sort of framed in now by what the limited audience left is going right. to accept. Right, and, and, and let's face it, what you're dealing with is the, it's, it's the ultimate triumph of Chuck Jones in that, in that the, the modern American comic book, which is to say the modern American mainstream superhero comic book, the template of that is Roadrunner and Coyote. You know, there's no, there's no stepping around that fact. Right. Hold, hold on just a sec. Hold on just a second. You want to be on your own for a bit, or you want to work a little bit? What are you going to do? You have nothing you can do on your own? Um. Well, I. Hold on a second, will you guys? Sorry. Sure. G- give me this, and I'll get back to you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I, I got. I, I just, want, I just want to make, make, make sure Calvin was, wasn't spinning his wheels waiting for me. And back to you. Sorry. Okay. But well, I mean, uh, I mean, that's part of the. Uh, I think the crisis in the industry now is because. A second, sorry. That was my editor calling to 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 hit me to the fact that I already knew that James Gunn had been rehired by Disney. Oh, really? Ah, okay. You, you didn't hear about this? No, not yet. I was working all morning, so I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, I. I mean, just, just before you guys called, I checked deadline. Uh, that was when, that was when I found out about Frank and John, and also the fact that they rehired James Gunn to do Guardians Three. Well, they must have been not been able to figure out a way to run it without him, so. I think that might be so, and also maybe they're maybe they're even maybe in private at least willing to be embarrassed that they were they, they, they were mob smacked, you know. But 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 I'm not optimistic. Right, right. But I mean, uh, it's I think it's ironic because you're 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 mentioning you know like these tentpole things like you know Frank and John doing the Superman thing, but again, shock, shock. Right, right. <laughs> but, but, but at the same time. There's a, a problem, I think, a wider variety of material being produced, even though it doesn't make people a lot of money, than, let's say, the mid-70s or the mid-80s. I, I, I happen to agree. Um, and, and, and a lot of it is my own bitterness and disappointment. I mean, the franchise of the second volume of, of Hey Kids Comics is about the loop created by Harvey Kurtzman in 1950 and my generation in 1970. Okay, that, that many members of my generation earnestly believed that we were in the cusp of recreating a new version of EC. And then discovered that what we were really doing was a holding action until Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz could come in and do superhero comics in the way they wanted to. And that's really the dynamic of, of, of that, that early part of the 70s. And is that so, because the, what happened with the market? You went from being, uh, you went to the direct market from being on the newsstand? Well, you have to bear in mind that in those days, none of us, the only guys who were prepared to do superhero comics in my generation were Rich Buckler and then Starlin. And, and Stan didn't want to work with any of us anyway, because he liked guys he could, you know, that, that, that were his own, you know, contemporaries. And it wasn't until Roy came in that, you know, Roy, Roy wanted to work with younger people. And he tried to bring in Brights, and Wrights and wouldn't come over, so he brought in Brunner. Okay? From Roy's perspective, Brunner was a perfectly good substitute for Bernie. And what we didn't realize was that and we, we could not see doing superhero comics. It felt as if we would be bent to the table of doing the, doing the material in that way. But when Frank and Bill come in, Stan has sort of released the reins so profoundly that superhero hero comics would then be bent to their will as opposed to the other way around. And that's really what happened. A, a, new way of doing, a new way of doing stuff that had been entertaining us since I was 12. So when you were doing things like uh, Dominic Fortune and, and you were doing uh, you know, Stars My Destination, right? Um, this was uh, what like sort of like the in between, I guess. 
I, I couldn't visualize myself doing the Fantastic Four or Iron Man or any of those things. I have, didn't have that skill set. And the Stars and the Nation was being, I was seduced by Byron Price, the currently dead Byron Price. Uh, he'll be back. Um, the, to, to do a, an adaptation of a novel that I truly loved, and then had him do the adaptation in which his, his literal mindedness completely missed a good 25% of, of, uh, of, of Alfred Bester's irony and narrative. Um, so, I mean, I was, I spent the 70s trying to find something else to do for a living using the skill set that I had. And that's why I'm incredibly grateful for First Comics. They gave me the opportunity to do Flag. And Flag, you know, I mean, there are people who've been simply, you know, dismissing me as a guy of the 80s. You know, at least I had a fucking decade, pal. You know, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know I had, I, I started, I did Flag, Times Squared, Blackhawk, The Shadow, and ended with Black Kiss, the first successful filthy comic book. You know, which 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 people seem to be, you know, always obsessed with the fucking part, but it's also pretty funny and ugly. No, you know, it, it's it's an articulation of my paranoia about living in California. I cannot convey that enough. <laughs> but uh, th- when you were doing, uh, you were you were doing that. You were you were trying to, I guess, uh, grow a new set of legs. Living yeah, in exactly. New York, well, I, I'm going to use that one. Okay, okay. so so like <laughs> living in New York, were and I've always been interested about this you guys in that era, you rights include all those guys, because you didn't go to like the Art Students League, you didn't study under Jack Farragoso, no, you weren't aware no, of anything no, like that? No, no, we, I, I can't speak for those guys, but I was too high. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, I mean I, I, didn't, breathe this, I, I didn't breathe the sober breath um, for my entire experience living in New York City until I moved I mean, I, I got sober in, 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 in January of 1992 and one of the things about living in New York in those circumstances, very simply, that you can be pretty high all the time. And I was. Okay? I was a daily pothead. And, you know, I, I was mostly, I was on a permanent buzz for most of, the, most of those years. So, uh, but I had a great work ethic. But I, but I had a phenomenal work ethic on top of that. <laughs> right, right. Well, well, I was actually very similar when I was in my uh, early 20s. I used to... Wake and bake, and I'd be high all day, and I had a job. <laughs> right. Everything else, I just like being high. But I stopped. Yeah. My, I stopped in my. I think by the time I was twenty three, I stopped. I stopped. You're a much better person than I am. <laughs> you know. Um, but I'm. I'm interested that the fact that you desire to, you know, like become a paperback artist, but you didn't think like, well, maybe I should study with one of these guys who did that, like you studied with Gil Kane. Never crossed my mind. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Never, ne- never crossed my mind at all. You know. Because those guys are actually... Well, bear in mind, I mean, I, I spent more time teaching on the college level than I ever did attending. I mean, my, my, only, my only college experience, I studied to be a radio broadcaster. So you went to the CBS uh, uh, School of uh, Radio? Uh... No, I went, I went to Columbia College in Chicago back when, the, when it was a school that literally turned out radio people. Now, of course, it's a, it's a movie and television school. Right. You know, in those days, it was a, it was a single building on the Lakeshore Drive next to the Time Life Book Depository. And uh, I flunked out very quickly and um, spent the next couple of years hitchhiking across the country, back and forth. So you uh, so you never had, because you were roommates with, with Wrightson for a while, right? No, no, we, we lived in the same building, same we building. never roommated. So like you yeah. guys, when you're all together smoking your pot, Taking the pot. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't get high with anybody else. The only. The only. I, I, I'm not naming names of people like I fucked up. But the, <laughs> <nobody does that. laughs> not but um, I, I, I was. I was just. And I was. Uh, I enjoyed my private time as well. Yeah. Okay. But I, I'm just sort of curious that a lot of you, that generation of people, were 
you know, you guys were influenced by the the the, the uh, Silver Age and Golden Age, right? But you were also influenced, you know, seeing uh, illustration, which was not right. something that was common as much with the previous generation of guys. Well, but but also the previous generation has to be understood as most of those guys had utter contempt for the work they were doing and and assumed that the work they were doing in comics was a was a, was a transition to what to what was uh, what was coming next. Only discovered that the work they'd been doing that they had such contempt for was the work they should have been paying, paying attention to in the first place. So you think they were aiming to get into to newspaper strips because of the greater money? I think that, that that's a lot of it. You know, I yeah. mean, um, I mean, anecdotally, when I worked for Gil, um, Gil would every so often go off on an hour long rant and screed. Okay, if you if you met Gil Kane at any given time, you know full well he was a man who liked talking to a man who liked talking and being listened to. And one day he literally took me aside. I think I was the only Jewish assistant he'd ever had. And he made it a point to tell me all the anti-Semites, it all turned out later on, that these are the same guys that he had cocktails with every Friday night, but that's another story. And he gave me a list of all the guys I should be aware of as I go out into the world, okay? And, um, and, and again, the, the, the demarcation that existed between the, the comic book world and the newspaper world um, was deep and profound. But most of those guys thought they had other things to do, that, 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 that better work was waiting for them. And none of them really were able to get out of it. I mean, look at how... You look at Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito, okay, who tried desperately to do something else in the early 50s. Cubert uh, and Maurer with their stuff, with the St. John stuff. Everybody wanted something else. Kaniger's contempt for comics and for his colleagues was just so endemic in the office. You know, just the utter complete contempt. I'll never, I'll never forget, I was at Marvel and Mike Esposito was in the bullpen. And I never heard anybody use the word comics fan and have so many syllables of utter dripping contempt come out of that, those two words. Just, just utter contempt for the field, for the material. And they were doing it for a living, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. I know that Toth often wanted to do something else, but he, his heart was always in comics, I think, again. Yeah, Toth is also a... mentally ill. I mean, he was, he was completely out of his fucking mind. Well, I'm well aware of that. I had a pretty long relationship with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. I mean, yeah. I mean, he is. Yeah. I, I regard him as the single greatest comic book artist who ever lived, and someone I would do everything I possibly could to avoid. Well, I think that up through a mutual acquaintance who was visiting him at the hospital at the end, apparently he was diagnosed as being bipolar right at the mm -hmm. end, and they were giving him mm -hmm. medication, and he was doing a lot better. But by then, of course, he didn't have much time left. Well, you read the the review I wrote for uh, for Bruce and and uh, and and, and uh, what's his name's book, right? For Los, Los Angeles Review of Books. For about Toth. Yeah, I, I did. I reviewed the first volume of, of the um, the book that Mulaney and uh, and Campbell did. Well, I don't know if I've seen that. Was it reprinted? Uh, send, send me an email. I'll, I'll send you my, my, my draft. Okay. Okay. Let me get your email then. Well, we can do it after okay. we finish it. Yes. Right. So I, I actually reading about Toth and actually having somebody close to me who was bipolar, it became very apparent to me that he was probably always an undiagnosed bipolar. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. You know, because he was yeah, so he, mercurial that either things are either really good or immediately really bad. Well, and he so hated doctors. I mean, he wouldn't even go to the dentist. This guy was just so set in his ways. So was that, well, were those guys like yeah, okay. that also who were 
bitter or twisted or whatever kind of like a life lesson as well? Well, I think so. I mean, I mean, we we all listened to these guys, and and it was just like, I mean, I was I was I had a chat with um, with Greg Goldstein a couple of months ago before he left IDW, and uh, we were he, he had read the first couple of issues of uh, of Hey Kids, and I said that the real separating factor between the generation before mine and mine was the with a lack of our lack of bitterness. And he said, of course, those guys went in expecting things to be get get better, and you guys went in knowing with your eyes wide open, with no expectations. And that's really true. <clears throat> we all did what we did because we really wanted to do what we did. Right. You know, I mean... You love... You love... I mean, you oh, love. I, I fucking love comic books right. so much. Right, right, right. I mean, I mean, I mean the, the, these days, I don't, I don't particularly enjoy reading comic books, but the, the process of making comic books is a great joy. Now, you don't enjoy reading because you don't find things that are interesting? No. Every, I mean, the last book that I read with any regularity, commercial book, was Scalped. Yeah, right. By Jason and and and, and Gara. Yeah, I loved it. I interviewed. And I had to get and I, and I had issue, I had a lot of issues with the artwork. I found it was weirdly colored. Yes, um, the coloring. You know? I think hurt. I think the coloring. Hurt. Right. I think and I rather like what Brubaker and Phillips do with their crime books. Right. Yeah. You know. But I mean, I get up. I mean, I'm I'm up at five thirty in the morning or so every day. And um, and I'm, I'm at the gym. I get I have breakfast with colleagues who hold the work I do in contempt. It's incredibly humbling and very human making. Um, they pay you for this shit? Come on, really? You know that kind of thing. <laughs> Not a joke. Quite serious. You know. I mean, it's it is staying right sized by, uh, under this onslaught is one of the great joys of living in a small town where nobody has any idea who I am or what I do. And then I get down to it. And um, you know today. My day will consist of working with Calvin, getting this page organized, and setting up what I call the sticks and circles of the next chunk of pages, which is to say, getting a sense of size relationships to what's happening in each panel. You know, so you I've work, got my layout, I got my thumbnail, and I got my pages full size. So you work on it as sort of like, is like almost like beats, then like visual beats. Well, what I I, I tend to think of it as I, it's solving visual narrative problems. That's what it's about. <clears throat> What would you say? Because I, maybe think you know, I mean, you know? I, I, I try not to have to write stuff to explain what the pictures mean. And this that, process sounds like you're actually building sets almost. Pretty, to a great extent, that's true. I mean, I'm, yeah. I've always felt my work is far more influenced by musical theater, for example, than it is by movies uh, or television or wrestling, as the case may be. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a serious theater enthusiast, and. Um, and a lot of what I get out of, out of live theater finds itself in comics. I look at Robert Fawcett's work, for example. I think Fawcett's work owes an enormous debt to stage work. Fawcett's best stuff doesn't have a cinematic quality to it, but it has a really stage-bound quality to it. There's a moment, there's almost that sense of an entrance on stage. You know, you look at the, the Holmes, Holmes pieces, the Hercule Poirot pieces, and just gen generally speaking, the work really has a stagey, contrived in the best sense of the word. And boy, we, and boy I am digressing like crazy here. I saw, Sorry about that. No, no, I mean... No, it's a, yeah, I'm interested in all those technical things. It reminds me, uh, I always noticed a similarity with uh, Mignola's approach in Fawcett because they always have the camera set dead level, eye level, right. looking straight into the scene. Which makes everything as clear as it can be. But That's something I never made, never noticed. That's quite true. 
and uh, you know, then they activate with all the beautiful black patterns and things like that. It sort of pushes you that way, as opposed to someone who's always spinning the camera and doing up and down shots. Right. Create much. Well, more. I mean, it's. I mean, I, I I tend to like the idea of very stagey work. You know, because um, I, I I like I like the the idea of, of applying the technique of opera and musical theater to comics. You know, without without being overt about it, you know, just characters and gesture. I mean, one of the, one of my favorite artists that nobody gives a shit about is Rick Burchett. Um, Burchett is one of the best drawers of acting I've ever seen, but he lacks the um, the, the the audience's you know sort of you know check marks against all the things they they would do if only they could kind of thing. Um, it, it frustrates me enormously when I see someone like that getting nowhere near the attention and props that he deserves. Well, sometimes it also has to do with whether you did a 47-issue run on, you know, major, you know, Marvel or DC character. Because, I mean, look at Tulf. I mean, he did amazing jobs on really stupid stories, like what is a snarl or stuff like that. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, no, I mean it, when you read the LAR, Los Angeles Review of Books thing, you'll see the, the comparison I make between Alex Toth and Phil Spector. And I stand by that comparison. And what, you know? and, and what is that? What is, what is that comparison? That bo- both men were able to take utter treacle and horseshit and turn it into art. I mean, I, I, as I say, as I say in the review, when I'm anywhere, I hear those first that first drum roll of the Duran Run, I get goose pimples, and I'm there. I'm 16 years old again, <laughs> and I'm obsessed with that Puerto Rican girl in front of, in the front of the class. You know, met her on a Monday and my heart stood still. Did do run, 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 did do run. Oh my God, it kills me. And I feel the same way yeah. about all those dreadful seven-page horror stories that he did for uh, for Standard. They're just awful, and they're gorgeous. They're phenomenal, but they are in the service of textual dreck. Yeah, most most of his stuff was. I remember talking yeah. to him about that, and he uh, well, we already mentioned his problems, but he would just send me these 20 page letters just trashing all this stuff about how terrible it was but he uh, also had no no sense of story himself that that's what's so freakish well that's what's his, interesting his, old concept is, of narr- his, na- his narrative appreciation seemed to have atrophied in 1948 yeah um, it's very strange had, I, mean, I mean imagine what he could have done if he could gotten past his own prejudices and worked with a guy like Alan Moore you know well, he also, uh, I know he did, even though he worked in film, he didn't really understand film language either. Not, not at and, all. Not and at all. trying to discuss that with him would be, as you know, as I was about to say, I would, he would just you know, dump on all this work he had done, and I would right. try and get him to talk about the idea that, do you think that that's because you were trying to apply too much sophistication in all these graphic means and a variety of shots and so forth to this dreckish material? Then he would defend it. That was the cycle I always got into with. No, you, so. you cannot. It, it, it is a war you cannot win, let alone yeah, wage. It was hopeless. You know, I mean, ultimately, absolutely. So, uh, going back to what we were, uh, we have digressed, digressed, digressed. Before we digress the hell out of the conversation. <laughs> um, when were you becoming uh, conscious of? pulling in like those outside sources of illustration I know you also were a big collector of you know cutting up old magazine you build a, a nice mm-hmm. at what point along the way did you go well this is this is where I need to go this is where I'm feeling I need to go or where well, I want to go coincidentally 
I mean, in the in the in the in like eighty one and eighty two, when first began to start making making offers, I found myself up against it in terms of debt because of the work for Byron Price. Because the only person who made any money for Byron Price was Byron Price. And illustration was dying rapidly for me because I was never going to get good enough to really generate a career. And cover rates were being cut left and right as publishers went down. And all this coincided with the arrival of of this offer from from, from First. And they made me this offer. The financial, the backing of the offer was amazing. It would enable me to get out from under debt and just save my life. And that was when I realized that I had to literally put my money where my mouth was. And I sat down and did six months of developmental education, study, organization, design, concept. I mean, just busted my ass. And, and the result of that was flag. Look at the flag stuff now, and it's, it seems uneven and places inept, but it still holds together in terms of what I wanted to do, which was to do something that was funny clever, dark, sexy, and, um, and different, you know, just, just different. I mean, the irony was that Jeanette Kahn insisted in, in that she was very, that I, that I should have done it for DC Comics. And there's no possible way I could have done Flag for DC Comics at that point. I needed a company with no baggage and no history whatsoever. You know what I'm saying? So, because you think that they would have put too much pressure on it for it to be a certain level of success? And I would have joined in that pressure because I would have been re- remembering what, it, what had existed before I got there. And he would have surely had a team up with Batman. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get me started on Batman, aren't you? Nice. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did this thing at CalArts a couple of weeks back with Bill Sienkiewicz, and it's on, it, it, and it, it's, it's on DVD now. I think they've already released it on YouTube. But I basically said that, as I said more than once, that Batman was a, a rich guy who had a bed when he was eight. You know? And, and this is the result of this? Come on. I mean, it's a 15-year-old boy's idea of a tough guy, like, like Raymond Chandler said about uh, Alan Ladd. But again, Superman year one? Yay! <laughs> well, you know, anything can be told in an entertain. To me, I don't try to take Superman and make it any more than something that's that, that's just entertaining. You know, it's like a, it's like. Well, have, a, have you read the Havens? Have you read the Havens book? No. You should read the Havens book. It's called "It's Superman." It's beautiful. It came out in the, in the winter of Christmas of two thousand five. I'm sitting on a flight flying home, and I started crying over Philadelphia, and I didn't stop until I got to Denver. Okay. It's it's heartbreaking. It's exactly what it is about Superman that made you want to be a comic book artist in the first place. Trust me on that. It will fuck you up. <laughs> it's staggering. And there, he wrote two books about Superman. One, Our Hero, Why Superman Matters, which is a series of critical essays. But it's Superman as a novel, as if John Dos Passos and John Steinbeck got together and were hired by Donenfeld and Leibowitz to write a novel based on the character they just stole. Okay? Wow, that's, really quite good. A, that's quite a pitch. <laughs> it's pretty fabulous. I, call, I mean, I didn't know Tom at the time. I don't know him. We've never met. We've spoken. But I got a hold of him and told him that if anybody, if anybody ever were to come around and try to do an annotation of this, I want to at least have a shot. It's that beautiful. So, so, is that, was that done through DC? I'm just curious. Was it it was done for Warner Books. So I have no idea okay. what, 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 whether DC had anything to say with it one way or the other. I don't know. Okay. All right. So, so, so uh, getting back to, so you, you, you put, you put the, t- you, you felt like you had to, 
to to step up a level, obviously, when you were doing flat. Right. And 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 uh, you you so you did you what, six months of self study and development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. And, and how did you go? Kind of specifically, how did you go about it? What did you decide? Well, what do I need to? Because uh, you have the visual element, obviously, but then you also have the story structure element. <clears throat> the influence of the story comes out of Terry and the Pirates, Gunsmoke, and Maverick. Okay. Those three elements define the material. Visually, I was looking a lot at Richard Saul Warman at the, at the Pushpin Studio stuff, and also at his magazine illustration of the period. And then, in terms of narrative, I wanted to do something that was sexy and, and reflected my, my then interest in fashion, because I was really a clothes horse at that point. And I just threw everything I could into, into the book. And so, would you uh, were you uh, doing? I guess what now they call style boards. Were you making your own sort of files? I mean, this is all post. Uh, oh yeah, pre- absolutely. Pre- computer no, no, and everything. No question about it. You bet. You know, I mean, I mean, when I was I was working on the second issue of Flag, and I was doing the splash page of the second issue, the second I, where was the piano player, and and I, as I'm doing this. I felt as if I decoded Robert Fawcett's design system to so profound a degree that I whooped. Simonson was on the other side of the room. He was working on Thor at the time. And he came over and we said, looked at me, and I pulled up some Fawcett stuff. And I said, look at this. And you can see, you know, this is, there's, a de- there's an encoded element to organization of space going on here. And it was just like, oh, I was also available to be taught. You know, I was 32 years old, okay? And, you know, when you're that young, and that hungry, it's almost impossible unless you're standing against your own your own your own wave not to learn. You know? My job now is to be sixty eight and still be willing to absorb and suck up. So that was what I well, that's what I call an, an aha moment where suddenly right, exactly. you, you you the light goes on and it gives you uh, like a, the thousand yard uh, per- perception. Exactly. Can, so you can now take. I mean, look, I'm, I'm in my I'm in my office right now. Okay, I'm looking up, and on the wall is the original of Fawcett's art director piece. Okay, you know where the guy the guy the off off camera guy is holding up a piece of Watman board showing the foreground. Yep. Yep. Okay, and it's the, the 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 graphic elements of this piece is all triangular. There's so many fucking triangles happening in this picture including the organization of, of, of the three pivot points of the shot, the, the drawing table, the art director, and the guy. And it's just, you know, it, there, but there is this constant sense of uncoding and decoding. I'm walking into the other room. I've got a Cosson piece, a, 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 a Gary Kelly piece, a Russell Patterson, you know, another Fawcett, a, a Herbert Pouse, a Jimmy Williamson, you know. And they're all, I mean, it's just that, the joy of breaking out and applying those sort of elements to comic book pages. You know, for me, it was a link. It was me separating myself entirely from what I've been doing for years in terms of following in Gil Kane's footsteps. I developed, I mean, I'd, I'd reached a point in my career, visually, where I no longer had to do action-packed stuff, where the pictures themselves were jittery enough to support narrative that didn't involve fighting. You know, which is the scenes in comic books. 
you know, that sort of stuff. So it was a real, it was a real change for me. Right, right. Now and then, going forward from that, then you started writing more stuff for other people. Right. Yeah, and I and I and I wrote for them the same way I wrote for myself, but I never felt I I got what I need. The only the only time I've ever been felt really successful there was in Twilight. Yeah. And in the and, and in the uh, the Batman thing I did with Chirello. Yeah. Well, you know, and and, and, and again, the great thing about Twilight is that uh, that John Byrne hated it almost as much as he hated Flag. Why did he Why did he hate it? Because he felt I had raped those characters. I think that that's a paraphrase or a near quote. <laughs> I haven't apologized, so we're it's still we're still we're still boring here. You know? Oh, I see. I see. You you, I'll, you I'll guys live. haven't had your your apologetic old man lunch at Denny's yet. Not yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a visual. No, that that those are video rights. I want to get a pizza. Yes, it is. Yeah. I think not. Yeah. Well, uh, I own several pages from Twilight. I mean, Garcia Lopez makes. Anything look great. Oh, look, if comics was a meritocracy, Garcia Lopez would be identified as the Christ. Uh, I, know, I, I, I he's just he's the best. And he's a perfect example of a guy who comes to superhero comics by way of romance comics. Think about that. Well, I think uh, that, that even though, uh, you know, I hope you're not offended by this, but I think your work has a deep sense of romance in it. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I did, did yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I look at, I mentioned Ross Andrew earlier, okay? Andrew was a guy who I was always aware of. I kind of liked. I loved his Wonder Woman stuff with Kaniger because it was just fucking nuts. But when, 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 uh, when he delivered those pencils for the Superman Spider-Man book, and we saw those pencils, the influence that he's had on Garcia Lopez cannot yes. be understated. Yes, I actually talked. You know, Garcia, Garcia Lopez's work is so much more, so much prettier for sure, but the use of deep space, it, yes. it's just unmistakable. Yes, yes, very, you know? very much. And I actually talked to him about that once. Um, and, JGL or, or, or Ross? Uh, no, to uh, Garcia Lopez. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, um, and it was very, it was very uh, uh, apparent. I think the the thing about uh, Ross Andrew was. His work didn't quite have that sexy turn to it, I think. Right. You know, like 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 his work was very dynamic, great storytelling, like you said, deep space. But his work had that, uh, it was a certain slight ugliness to it, I guess is the only way. Oh, no, it was, it was unpretty, and it wasn't helped by the fact that Esposito didn't make it any prettier. Right, right. Yeah, where I think like somebody like Romita would ink it, and then he would make it, you know, attractive. Everybody would be, mm -hmm. even even um, Giacoya would do that. Yes, yes. You know? uh, and it was Gill who ultimately was able to point out to me the the high value of Ross's work. Gill was a huge fan. Yeah, I talked to him uh, on the phone once. It was a pretty weird phone conversation because then he ended up starting. He, no, he was he was a he was a very curious guy. Yeah, he started talking a about very a very curious guy. He started talking about uh, what was it like baboon clitorises or something? I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, not the kind of conversation I thought I was going to have with Ross Andrew. <laughs> oh, I'm touching myself inappropriately. Now. That's fantastic. <laughs> That was a very, it was a very, very odd. No, he was a, he was a very curious guy. He was very odd. Hold on a second. What's that? Be right back.
Okay. I had no idea what BRB stood for, but thank you so much. I'm, I'm kind of tingly now. I've seen a bit. It's okay. I, I also back, think, back to you. I also think you know you, you call you call an hour later. You get you get what you pay for here, kids. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I also think that uh, one of the the differences in comics with that generation is a lot of those guys worked in isolation, and yeah. uh, and because it was not glamorous the way illustration could be. Uh, and it was not like working in animation where you worked in an environment with other people. It kind of twisted some guys up a little bit. I think that's probably true. You know? Um, but, uh, so you go on, you start you start trying to get into the paperbacks. Uh, I remember buying uh, Sword of Heaven, Flower of Hell. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I, I I did a lot of you know I, I you know I did Empire, I did the Stars of My Destination, I did Swords of Heaven, you know, I, and I, I did what I could. I was trying to find other stuff to do. And um, did you have you an know, agent for what Did you get an agent for illustration? No, no, I tried, but nobody. I wasn't good enough, really. You know, and there was there was no real. I mean, my work didn't have any real value outside of the world. You know, it's. You know, one of the things that happens in contemporary comic books is that many of the guys who are who are sort of involved in comics in, in the academic universe tend to relate to comics from an academic perspective as it compares to other forms, as opposed to comparing it unto itself. You know, the way mm, a guy like like uh, like Chris Ware um, identifies himself as marginal when he's when he's far from marginal. And but but the work I did really wasn't good enough for either side in, in the long run, and um, and ultimately, I, re- I returned to black and white and, and was grateful for it. You know. So you weren't say like a guy like Corbin who sort of cut out his. Oh, own Corbin! And... Corbin is a god. Corbin is a master. I mean, no. Corbin, Sinkevich, to a certain extent, Dave McKean, who gets a lot from Bill. Those guys were far superior than anything I could do. It really wasn't until I evolved textual voice that I felt I was able to compete. You know, as I, I said this to Bill in public last week, two weeks ago. I said that, you know, I'll never draw as well as he does, but I thank the gods he'll never write as well as I do. That's the bottom line. So now, because I'm, I'm always interested in this not draw well enough thing. Is it is it because you just don't want to suffer as much? Or... <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think. I think a lot of it is patience. Hold on a second. Get the fuck away from me! I'll kill you where you stand. Go. Yay. Yo. Yo. Move. Get out of here. My dogs. I have oh, many. I hope that was your dog. <laughs> I have many, many dogs. That's a mailman. That's how you talk to your mailman. I have. I have, I have swarms of dogs. Ah. And my Good dogs man. like to pit stop in my office and just to see. Well, is there anything I can eat here? I mean, what do you got? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You mean so, food? Uh, Howard yeah. means food. Well, look, I've I've always said the the looks of love that my dogs give me is actually more a matter of figuring out where they're going to start eating when they find me dead. Mm. Mm. You know, that's what it's Marie Provost Invitational, so to speak. So, so at a certain point, did you feel like, well, I'm satisfied enough with the drawing to produce the type of work that I want? Yes, but I think think that's that that, that's an embarrassingly fair estimation. Yes. Because I'm, I'm, I'm. See, that's one of the things that I'm always fascinated about. Because it's like some people continue to always push the rock up the hill. Some people, like Garcia Lopez, are a great husband of their own ability, and they don't burn themselves out. 
There's other people who burn themselves out and become like machines, and then they're they're never ever able to recover from that. And I think with in the case of somebody like Basema, there might have been some bitterness about that. Are you burning yourself out? You I think know? that's possibly true. Yeah. Okay. You know. So I I. And, and, you know, doing two comic strips, I'm very aware of, you can get pretty close to burning yourself out, producing that work. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of stunned at your, at your ability to maintain. I mean, that, that, that is, that, that's, that's a serious grind. Yeah, yeah. You well, I, I don't plan and, on and I And I, I'm not saying this with even the slightest bit of irony. It's, it's pretty admirable. Well, I, uh, thank you, you know. But, you know, if one paid more, I'd only do one. <laughs> I, I look. I, you know, again, it goes right back to that idea that we have to remind the audience that, uh, hey, it's my job too. You know, it's not just a calling, and it is a calling by any means, but it is also my job. Right, right. So now, you know, at at your, at you know at your at the stage that you are, you don't have to grind. You can be a little bit choosier. Uh, you can do. Well, that's not true. I mean, I, I mean, if I if, should I choose to work, I have to. You know, I mean, I've aged out of Marvel and I've aged out of DC. I can't get work at either company. You think you've truly <laughs> aged out like they wouldn't? Oh, absolutely. No question about it. I'm an old, fat, white guy. What do you think? So you, wouldn't, you couldn't get work as a, as a writer because you're not in on the, the hive mind I, kind of a thing? No, look, I mean, here's, take a look at the work I've done for Marvel and DC in the past five years. I've done a couple of covers, mostly out of, out of, on variants, out of, out, of the, out of friendship. I did a 10-page story for War as Hell. <clears throat> I wrote Rough and Ready, and I've done some other stuff. But for the most part, no one wants me up there. And I'm okay with that. I really am. I'm not, not, I don't lose my shit over this. You know, I mean, I'm grateful to have, have Image as a client to work at. You know, see how I rebel on that line. Um, you know, the, the experience I had in 2017 with the divided states of hysteria left me very shaken by my relationship with the audience. Um, you want to elaborate on that a little? You want to elaborate on that a little bit? So because of well, the I was I, I I published a book which was basically had a, there were there were two images the the cover of the first issue was a woman wearing a niqab made of an American flag, and the intended fourth issue featured a shot of a of a Middle Eastern man being lynched having been lynched, and the audience um, for the, took took it upon themselves to not read the book but to make assumptions based on imagery to impose their own set of belief systems on it, uh, to the point where a number of my colleagues, who are dead to me now, um, joined this pillory. And, um, of course, none of them are brave enough to come actually say anything to my face, but they were willing to hide behind the megaphone of their, of their keyboards. Right. Wow. And the, the material, I mean, I think, it, I think it damaged me personally and professionally. Um, it was very insulting and very upsetting, and, and there were people who actually said, "I don't have to read it to know it's bad," and that that is a demonstration of a, of a kind of of a crypto fascism that they cannot accommodate. People were assuming that I was a member of this comic skate crowd, which I found shocking. Really, people actually thought yes. that you were a member. Oh yeah, I mean, no. They, you know, let's face it, we, and with all due respect, an enormous part of the audience is willfully ignorant and also guilelessly self-regarding. Well, that's not limited to comics anymore. I know, but we are talking about comic books here. I, I'm not. I'm, I mean, I, I tend to keep things specific. Um, yeah, they really did. I mean, I was I was called upon to denounce members of the Comic Skate crew, whom were my Facebook friends. Okay, I told the person who was asking me to denounce them to give me a day to take to take a look at the situation, and I ended up unfriending the people who were part of the Comic Skate, but also the one who asked me to denounce as well, because. 
it, we, I was being asked to join in the pillory to take the side of people who have been shitting all over my parade for a good year. And that seemed counterintuitive. I guess that whole okay. thing, I mean, I'm aware of the co whole Comicsgate thing. I was unaware, I guess I somehow, I, I was not aware of the, the people being against you for... Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. Look, I mean, I'm, I, I was referred to in the past year by someone on the left as a, and this is a great quote, as a, a, a demon in a human skin suit. <laughs> and, and by someone on the right as a neutered butler of the social justice warrior movement. Wow. So butler? I'm, 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 butler so I'm catching it from both. I'm mm -hmm. catching it from both. Sides, I think you should make you a know? book like that. With those well, two characters? the fact of the matter is, I mean, I'm, I, I have no idea what the audience wants other than to have its own sensibilities flattered and pandered to. You know, it, it is a credulous audience. And, um, you know, I'm, since I never became a superhero guy, I can't really, I'm not of any real value to Marvel or DC except in a, you know, look, we're still using occasional old white guy. You know, and I'm not that interesting and nor interested in the work they're asking me to do. Um... You know, I just, I mean, when I, when I did, the last thing I did for Marvel any value, I did the Avengers 59, and most of my editor's notes were, you know, use their powers more, and that's almost the antithesis of what I care about. Um, so you could, so, so you could have written pages 12 to 15, they use their powers more. Exactly. <laughs> but I'm you could serious, have got a fat you know? check, Howard, you could have got a fat I, check. I mean, I just, I, I and, and again, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't really care about guys coming out of their eyes, you know, like, yeah, please, I mean, I... I just don't care. Well, I, um, I, and my and my lack my lack of caring makes me no friends. Well, you will. I I, you know? I think it, you do better doing your own stuff today. I even me too. To, I I'm, look, I'm I mean I'm artists. I'm real proud of the work I've been doing for the past couple of years, but finding an audience for it has been an uphill slide. Well, it's, that's that's the quandary, right? Because there's so much right, exactly. There's so yeah. much entertainment. People are spoiled. People are choking on entertainment. But I can tell you that, you know, I teach a class every week of teenagers, and they are not reading any Marvel and DC comics. What are they they're reading? reading? They're reading web comics. They're reading things online. They're looking at YouTube. They're not paying mm -hmm. for content. They're, getting, they're trying to get their content for free. And they don't give a shit about any Marvel or DC or Image or anybody else. You know, they're looking at that stuff that's not even on their radar. Interesting. It's not even on their radar. They don't even care about that. I, I, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned. None of them know who Kelvin and Hobbes are. None of them know who. None, none of them knew who Popeye was. So you could just go down a litany of characters that would, you know, even. I've, I've been teaching since early two thousands. So the kids okay. that I started teaching then knew all those characters. Well, you, right. you know, these kids don't even know the old Batman TV show or the they don't know any of that stuff. It's just not it's not not even on their horizon. But they still consume comics. They consume web comics, they consume humor comics, they consume tons of manga because there's a variety of stories. But and they like the Marvel DC stuff as far as movies, but they're not gonna be like I was when I was Thirteen, I would, you know, buy an issue by you or Wrightson or Adams, and then you want to try to find the next issue. They're not hunter collectors at all, like that. Interesting. So, I, I, so I have no faith whatsoever. So it's a good thing I'm old. So, but I, I, I think that what you're what you're doing is doing your own stuff is better in the long run than doing stuff for the corporate people. 
Oh, I look, I'm not, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've got, like I say, I'm finishing up the third and final volume of Times Squared. I've got the breakdown for the second volume of, uh, of Hey Kids on the boards. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the country on Wednesday for a show in, in, Amsterdam, in, in Holland. And um, whereas my colleagues all seem to go, sneak over the rooms and do their commissions at night, I don't do that. But uh, I've got a couple of days free, and, I'm, and I've got long flights. So my goal is to do a little bit of breakdown on, on the pages because I, I have a very general idea of how the, how the second volume works out. Um, and, it, and my next job is to figure out who I'm conflating with, where I'm going to create composite characters that, I, that won't get me killed or arrested. Uh, that, that is my goal. Because the, the real problem with this one is there are a lot of people who I'll be telling stories about in this that are still alive. And uh, so I've, so I've got to be a little more subtle, you know, with that. So we'll see. Now, do you, do you draw or sketch for pleasure? No. Did you ever draw and sketch for pleasure? Yes. So at what point did it become not pleasurable? I just, I don't know. I mean, it just, it just stopped. I mean, I, uh, I sit down on my desk and I start drawing. You know, I mean, as I, say, as I sit, I'm sitting with my feet up on my drawing table right now, looking at pages 37 through 58 of Times Squared. And when I hang up with you, I'll start indicating generalized line of action shapes on them. And that'll be it. Tomorrow is Saturday, so I probably won't work. I'll take my wife to a movie. Uh, Monday and Tuesday, I'll be doing uh, Monday. I'll be doing rough pencil, and Tuesday I'll be tight pencil. And uh, I don't work on time anymore. I work on on mission. Um, what must be done today must be done today. Oh, that okay. sort of thing. Okay. So, so you don't uh, like? I know Gain used to do those practice Never. sheets. You know when he would. No, you know, no, no, not intro. No. No, 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 no. But you no. still love looking at art. You still love creating. Oh, I do, I do, absolutely. But you, you find it's it has to be tailored more for a purpose. Yes, I mean I am. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's my job. I, I just I always bear, bear in mind I've been I've been doing this professionally for going on forty eight years. Not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could have fooled me there a day. <laughs> my editor calling to give me shit. Can you believe this? Really? Editors. Really? <laughs> that I, that I pay to edit my stuff. That I pay to edit my work. <laughs> so you pay you pay someone to get to have a second set of eyes? Mm-hmm. So so anyway, my, my uh I guess tying into my, my my point before the phone call was at what point did you decide, or how did you go about getting your, you know, going and meeting Gil or Kane? At what point did you go from being a fan to saying, I wanted to do this, this guy will hire me to get him coffee? Back in the day, in New York City, there was an entire network of guys who knew everybody, all of us kids, okay? There was a rumor mill, and there was a, a drum that everyone threw it. And the rumor well was that Gil Kane's assistant had dropped dead in the middle of the night of, a, of an un, undiagnosed heart ailment at 21. A guy named Tim Batterby, who had it in him to be a major player, who died at 21 in sleep. And I called up. At the time, I was house-sitting for a friend. I was about two blocks away from Gil was living at the time. I called him up in that, in that callous teenage way. If I hear your assistant die, you need somebody. <laughs> and I went to see him. He hired me on the spot, and even though he told me my work was shit and utterly worthless. And um, I worked for him for six months, and we, we maintained a relationship. And um, I learned more in that six months than I did doing anything else for anyone else in my entire career. 
did you? Um, I hear I hear his voice. I hear his voice when I. I mean, the one thing I can honestly say is that what separates me from the guys who are my mentors is that none of them could write worth a shit. And I'm a pretty good writer. And and were you aware of uh, husbanding your career in a way that those some of those guys didn't so they didn't no. end up being no no plan i had no plans i mean no. i mean my, my my life was a series of fortunate accidents or unfortunate accidents depending on the situation i met gil when i was 13 years old as a kid he didn't remember me uh at a, at a comic book store i was i was selling comics i'd stolen from a friend and he was looking for will james books because he was so interested in learning how to enhance his own drawing of horses and um i i had worshipped him as a god i mean i was a a huge fan of the Julie Schwartz Silver Age stuff. And it was a, you know, we were partisans of either Gilkane or Carmine and Patino. And um, we all, the only thing we united us was how much we hated Mike Sikowski's work. <laughs> and, and we just hated Sikowski's work so much. And, um, and Gil was just this, this divine creature. And he looked like he was supposed to. He was, you know, the shock of white hair, these black eyebrows. And he was just, you know, so supercilious and so condescending. He was fantastic. And but the great thing was that he still had a a primitive sensibility that was that that would come out. I mean, I thought the the Groth book that, that Gary published last year, Sparring with Gil Kane, was an absolute treasure. It really was. It was fantastic. And I thought the the piece that they did of the the, the 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 transcription of the of the panel discussion at the Friars with him and uh, and Eisner and and Stan was staggering in its revelatory nature. You know. Um, I mean, one of the best afternoons I've ever spent was watching Cover Girl with Gil Kane as he annotated the entire movie. I learned more about the depiction of physical movement in space from listening to him talk about about Gene Kelly and Rita Hayworth than I could have been in any other context. So I owe him, I owe him a debt which will never be payable. So now you have assistance, and you've had assistance. I take it over the years. Do you? Oh yes, I've, yeah, I've been working with assistance since the mid eighties. Right. So do you... In the mid-70s, 70s actually, when I was working for Byron, I had guys doing flaps, sure. Okay. Absolutely. So do you try to do the same thing? Do you try to pass on the... Absolutely. I mean, my, my, when I hire someone, my, my, my promise is I will get you to do better work for me than you do for yourself. Because you are naturally a lazy motherfucker and aren't working hard enough, but you come work for me, I will bust your ass. And that's the deal. Look, consider the people who've worked for me. You know, Bat Lash, Joe Jesco, um, Peter Cooper... Dean Haspiel, okay? These are, these are all graduates of the Howard Jagan School of Fine Comic Art. <laughs> do they have a little, sir? Do they have a little... Uh, no, but no, I, I, I thought about doing it, but, 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 but Woody was still alive, and I wouldn't want to step on rain in his parade. <laughs> you know, and, and what did you do for uh, Wood? I ghosted strips. I, did, I, I drew a comic strip. I also did some other ghost work for him. Um, you know, Woody was a, a cautionary tale, you know? By the yeah, time I met him, he was he was, he was well he was well on his way to well on his way, way to suicide. You know, yeah, yeah. he was mm, that, a miserably unha- I mean, a miserably unhappy man whose expectations were obviously unfulfilled by comic books. Right, right, yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of scary when you reach that age of people that you admired or your heroes, and they they pass away, and you go, "Oh, I'm at that, I'm at that stage," you know. And in the case of a guy like Wood, when he was like fifty-one, he looked like he was ninety. I mean, right. Well, as I've said more than once in print, you know, I wanted to go up to be Gil Kane, but I was afraid I'd end up like Wallace Wood. Mm. You know, so you know, um, he was. On the other hand, you know, I working for Woody introduced me to Jack Abel, who was one of the best people I've ever known in my life. 
Um, and funny. Renting, Jack was renting studio space. Uh, he was sharing a studio with uh, with Sid Shores. And within within a day or two of showing up, Jack realized he had an, in me he had an accomplice. And um, and he was he, he 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 spent days just destroying Sid. He was just truly awful to him. And uh, he got and, and he and he and he wrangled me in, and the two of us would just literally beat the shit out of Sid daily. And Sid was only aware of it a half of the time. You know, I mean, just a consummate dumbass. Um, and Jack, Jack just took me in and turned me into the douchebag I am today. I mean, it was fantastic. So just lots of practical jokes, huh? Oh, no, just, just horrible, insulting. <laughs> Jack was... Terry Austin did, created the official Jack Abel shit list and hung it on the wall at Continuity. And my name was the only one that was inked. I had number. I was position number one, and I was inked in. Everything else was pencil. I was so grateful. You know, uh, Jack. Jack was the greatest. He was just so so wonderful. He really was just the best. And what did you do uh, with uh, Neil at Continuity? I actually didn't do anything in Continuity. I, I I did storyboard pencils for him. He he showed show me how to do that. And in those days, it was, since there was no money in comics, if you could develop a storyboard style, you could make some serious dough. I mean, I, I survived frequently for doing a week or two a month working at JWT or B and B, um, doing teeny frames, you know, for a buck and a half a day, about one hundred fifty a day. You know, and that was good dough. You know, and, oh yeah. Um, you know, do, doing two by three frames. You know, I did a lot of work for Ford. Um, I had a couple of accounts of my own, which I did freelance. Um, it was good because comics paid shit. What what was the standard page rate in like 1970? Well, I got 23 bucks a page to pencil uh, Patrick and the Great Mouser. Wow. Well, of course, 23 dollars was not what 23 dollars is today. Right. I mean, I, I and I got I got 45 to pencil the Star Wars stuff page. And, and and with the reprints, with reprint uh, the arrangements, I made an additional fifteen bucks a page. Do you still get reprint money today from that? No, well, I, I have in the in a couple of pieces, but had had the book come out a year later when the royalty system was in, in place, I would have made between a million and a million five. Holy cow! And but I'd be dead because my lifestyle at that point took looked at a million dollars and said, "Hey, this this I could kill myself in a weekend. This be good." <laughs> so <laughs> providence stepped in. Exactly. So, I mean, it leaves me bitter, but not dead. You know, so it works. It work. It's a nice balance, if you will. You know? Do you still have any of the art for it, or did you get rid of it all? No, no, I, I couldn't, couldn't wait to get rid of that shit. And now what about a, a lot of your older art? Do you still have it, or do you... No, no, I, I don't... Once it's printed, I don't care about it at all. Really? So you don't have any... You still don't have any old Monarch no. Star Stalker no. pages? No, long gone, long gone. Really? I only own a couple of pieces of my own, and they're all in my storage unit because my wife thinks they're good, and she doesn't know what she's talking about. Uh, I see. Um, I see. No, my, my walls are decked out with... I have a Von Schmidt over my fireplace in my studio. I have a, a Ralph Palin Coleman above my computer. I have that faucet piece over there. A Harry Beckoff in the corridor, and the guest room is, is a, has a... Um, 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 uh, Nancy Stahl and uh, the David Grove, Bernie Fuchs. You know, good stuff. So you prefer looking at other people's work? Oh yeah, I don't give a shit about my own. Because it's it's funny because some some people are like that, but then like Al likes looking at his stuff. He, he you know he, Who, who's that? Williamson who's that? liked looking at his stuff. You know, yeah, but, but Williamson never really really aged after, after past twenty two. I mean, he was he was the world's oldest uh, you know late teenage guy I've ever known. You know, I, I sort you of know? think that he and 
Corey Ackerman were like the original comic fans in a way. To a certain extent, you know. There, there's my, my my first meeting with with Al Williamson. I will never discuss in public. But in private, and next time I see you in face, maybe in Baltimore, if I see you then, I'll tell you my first meeting with with okay. Williamson. Okay. It was hysterical. Okay. Um, and 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 funny, but I won't go in. Not, not not for public consumption. So so uh, so you're gonna you're 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 working on the next Hey Kids. I, I picked up the first volume here, which I will uh, 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 peruse. So. You're perusing, are you? <laughs> I'm perusing, and I notice, like, I mean, you're using, uh, when you're using uh, the photographic, I guess you, you're sort of like photo bashing, right? Where you're taking the photos of, of uh, existing locations, like you said, where you did in the, uh, the, the Times Square, where you took the, uh, mm-hmm. the Macy's thing. Um mm-hmm. Do you sort of feel like it's kind of like a sitcom in a way where you go back, you can reestablish uh, a shot and use it over again, and it adds a certain... Well, no, I mean, in, in, in the case of Hey Kids, I'm doing that very consciously because we have the same location which shows up. Our characters, I mean, the the, the, fr- the structure of the book, first and last last issues are four, ish, four pages longer than the others because there's a, there's a cold open in issue one and a coda in five. But the structure of the stories are 45, 55, 65, and 2001. And the, the, the locations are very specifically repeated to show that this saloon, which we first see in 1945, uh, ends up becoming a cartoonist hangout and then, and then a fern bar later on. Because um, it's all about New York. And it's all about the, the gentrification of the city around these people. Um, and the, the memorials that all take place in the 2001 sequences because um, all the 2001 sequences revolve around death, or um, all take place at the same, at most of the same place, the Ethical Culture Commission. In a, in what one is at the Gay and Lesbian Center in New York City, which is a real place, uh, the Ethical Culture Center. And um, but the saloons and the streets, I really wanted to sell the idea of repetition, because from issue to issue, um, the characters end up drinking in the same place, and they end up bitching in the same place. And um, and that that was sort of a, a very consistent choice made there. Right, right, right. Because um, I, well, I mean, like I say, when, when you read the book, you'll see what I'm talking about. Right, right. I mean, I I'm 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 sort of I'm, I'm scanning as as we as we uh, as we go through. I also know another thing is um, the head size, the head size, and the head placement in the panels tends to be. Fairly consistent in very a very conscious choice, right? Like when uh, one of the things about uh, when I learned to do storyboarding is you keep the eyes at a certain level so you don't get the ping pong of your head right. going up and down. Now, is that something that carried across from doing boards, or is that something you became aware of separately in doing comics? That's more television than anything else. Okay, it really comes from working in TV. You know, particularly working on low bu- working on low budget action shows, which of course is oxymoronic. Um, working in in, in in action shows that have no budget, where you've got really got to sell through through stress and tension, um, and a lot of it comes out of understanding of the the repetition of heads. And when I did uh, for when I do when I did Satellite Sam with Matt Fraction, um, I told Matt's story, but I didn't tell it in the pattern he arranged. Um, 
because I didn't feel that his his visual idea was as strong as mine. So I developed a, a sort of a narrative pattern of, of almost postage stamp sized heads to enhance action in, 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 the, in the larger panels. And that sort of carries over to a certain extent in Hey Kids. Okay, okay, because that's something I've always noticed. I mean, for example, that, that, that design system does not show up in Times Squared. Okay. It's, I mean, my feeling is the design system is directly related to the sort to the material you're, you're, you're depicting. So, if you were doing something that had, say, um, was was more nourish or more action, you would not do the same. Um, I might, but I but I'd use it in a different way. You know, I mean, I just read a, a piece about David Goodis, who was one of the, the great noir writers, and I realized that. A lot of the techniques I'm using on this, on Hey Kids, and on Satellite Sam would apply to, to directly the kind of, of a noir narrative. Um, because noir narrative is all about, um, about wide space and then, and then immediate tension. So you play with that idea. So you're, 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 you're conscious of... I, I think, I think, I think the, these techniques lend themselves directly to a noir narrative. Right, right, right. I mean, it's just something I I really notice when I'm uh, going through it. I see a lot of the the uh, the same space, and the psychological aspect that it has of you sort of narrating the story of having the people uh, tell or narrate their part of the story. Oh, it's it's a very a very conscious decision. No question. And again, when you read it, when you when you when you finally when, when you work the text with, with with the visual, you'll see exactly where I'm going. Right. I have no doubt. Right. Now I also. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, for example, whether this approach is going to work in the sec in the second volume, which has an entirely different narrative structure. Right. Now the the other thing uh, that's that's say different, even from you know, especially like uh, from your newsprint days, is the coloring. Right. I, I love computer. I love computer color. I love saturated color. I know people hate it. I love it. Um, I think it gives it, it gives the material a really interesting volume, and, I, and I'm very excited by it. I, I think it's just swell. And you're but you're still using uh, Ken Brusenak to do the lettering. So is there? Ah, oh, oh, the best. Right. Okay. So you. I mean, he is he is he is at least as big a pain in the ass as I am, and I am a raging pain in the ass. But he is the best at what he does. He is an unsung master in the work that he does. I love his work so much. So you, and I know, and I, I know how to get the best work out of him too. So do you do the you balloon know? placement and everything, and you give it to him on an overlay? No, or? no, he, no, no. He's he's he, he's taking it over and running with it. And I and I basically come back at him and say, "This works. This doesn't." Okay. I'm not, I'm not going to place balloons for Brusenek. That's not going to happen. Okay. Okay. Never. I would never do that. So he sends it to you, and then you can say... Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I gave him... I mean, he, he got... I, I, I've read the first 24 pages of, of, of Times Squared, um, and, and the, the, my notes are mild. My notes are mostly, you're too restrained. Where's that bruising at? Go kick some ass. <laughs> Seriously. I mean... Uh, it's just like I said, you're being too gentle and polite. This is a noisy book. Go out there and be crazy. You know, and, that, and I have no fear that it'll come back that way. It's because I suppose it's easier to pull back than to push. Exactly. 
Hey, listen, I, I got to get back to work, so uh, we got to wrap this up sooner. Okay, later. well, no, no, we're coming up in about an hour and a half, but it, uh, thank you very much. It's been... Uh, oh, no, no, thank you, guys. I, I, look, I'm willing to mistake attention for affection, so I, I'm good with this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and, and again, Mike, when I see you in, in Baltimore, I'm assuming I'll see you in Baltimore, right? Yes, you will. Remind me, I'll tell you the Williamson story. You'll love it. Okay, great. Well, I do you. remember one thing I said about... Uh, your work, he said that he, he loved the fact that you drew uh, the most vulgar women since Roy Crane. Yes, I know. I remember that. <laughs> the word he used was wanton. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> made my it made my fucking day. Let me tell you, that was beautiful. Well, thanks a lot, Howard. Uh, and and again, and, and I might add also, both of you, once the 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 Hey Kids Volume Two develops. I may be very well be talking to one or both of you about about a a contribution. I'll, I, I'm being oblique for a very specific reason. We'll discuss. Okay. Okay. okay great. Yeah, I'm, uh, I was, uh, I've yeah. been sitting here thinking about what you said, and there's so many. It's so interesting how so many different personalities approach what they do at all. Because I was thinking that for most of my working life, um, I did assignments just to give me time to work on my sketchbook and paint. <laughs> you know, and, and we, like so we are clearly operating in entirely separate, separate and divorced from each other universes. Yeah, it's strange, you know. It's really mm-hmm. interesting. I can <laughs> and, and I and I love the assignmentness of it all. I do. So. Yeah, you adapt. You even, even if even if I'm the assigner, you know. So there you go. But, all, right. all right, gentlemen. It has been an absolute pleasure. Now I have to yell, yell at my assistant. So give you know, say a prayer for his ass. Okay. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we'll talk soon. Right. Be well, guys. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye. Later. Bye. Bye. Okay. Well, I guess that's it for uh, this podcast. And uh, so, what are you going to just keep working, Brett? I haven't stopped. I've oh. been working the whole time we were talking. That's probably why I was a little distracted. But it's just. That kind of a day. Okay. Well, uh, I guess until next time. Brett and I would like to thank Howard once again for taking time out to talk to us today. On our discussion forum, you can find examples of the art that Howard was talking about, as well as links to Howard's work and other resources. Also, don't forget to suggest artists that you would like to hear us talk to on the podcast. I would like to thank my brother Dave Manley for the sound editing help, as well as Steve Connolly for all the other technical help putting this episode together. Okay, that's it. See you next time.